Hi there, and welcome to episode three of the Roots and Routes podcast, Black Movement Part Two, The Great Migration. If you're joining us for the first time, the Roots and Routes podcast features scholars, authors, and enthusiasts alike to explore what has influenced the movement of people into, out of, and within our state, and take a glance at how both chosen and forced migrations and changes in transportation throughout our state's history have helped shape Missouri. My guest for episode three is Dr. Tony Holland, a retired professor of history and social sciences from Lincoln University and co-author of the book, The Black Heritage of Missouri. He also served in the United States Army in the US and Vietnam and served in the Missouri Army National Guard, retiring as Lieutenant Colonel. Thank you, Dr. Holland, so much for joining us. So Dr. Holland, as you might know by now, our 2023 signature series is entitled Roots and Routes, the Movement and Settlement of Missourians. And we want to make sure we tell a variety of stories from many perspectives this year. And this month we're focusing on stories related to black movement. So we recently released episode two, which served as a part one of sorts to this two-part conversation. The episode features Dr. Brian Jack, a professor of history at SIU Edwardsville, and he talked with us about a smaller but still very much impactful movement of people, the Exodus and the Exodusters, which provided a really interesting precursor and almost an introduction of sorts to this next topic of the Great Migration. So with all that said, can you give us an introduction, kind of an introduction to this historic event known as the Great Migration? Generally speaking, the the Great Migration uh, starts uh, as a result of uh, World War One. Up until World War One, there was a huge migration uh, from Europe, a continuing migration. In fact, approximately about a million immigrants were coming from Europe uh, a year. And with World War One starting in Europe in 1914, that immigration was pretty much cut off. You know, some claim that it went from a million maybe down to as much as about 300,000, but it, it was effectively very diminished. At the same time, with Europe involved in war, the United States sort of became uh, uh, the workshop of the world in a sense, yeah, even though we normally even associate that with World War II, but this also happened in World War I. And so, uh, there was the European migration has been cut off, and here is this huge demand in in the United States to provide goods and services. You know what I'm saying, and and so there was a tremendous need for labor, and the answer turned out to be Southerners, uh, both actually both white and black. Although what's more noticeable is the migration of of Southern blacks. And in fact, there was a, an effort on the part of, uh, of businesses, uh, railroads and the like, to encourage uh, black Southerners to come north uh, to you know, engage in industrial pursuits. And they were very much encouraged by the fact that uh, things were pretty tough in the South. You had um, pretty much the South agriculture was in the Depression actually starting early 1914, 1915. And so the agriculture was very hard put. A lot of African-Americans were uh, sharecroppers. 
and 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 African Americans as sharecroppers, people were making as little as seventy-five cents a day, even less. And of course, they you know they're hearing tales of you know Henry Ford, you know he was willing to pay workers uh, you know five dollars a day, and so you know the, the, uh, this spread and uh, you know not only by word of mouth. Uh, but also by newspapers. In fact, uh, one particular newspaper in, in the black community, the Chicago Defender, would actually play, uh, pay Pullman car porters to take their newspaper down to the South. And, they, and, and it would have these advertisements, you know, about the great jobs that were available and editorials so an effort to encourage uh, black workers to come north to engage in industrial pursuits. And in fact, um, I think, the, you know, by some census accounts, you know, if you look at like 1910, the, uh, there were about a half a million blacks engaged in industrial pursuits of all kinds. By 1920, it's just under a million. So it almost doubles. And also uh, the railroads and other companies actually sent agents to the South to encourage these uh, workers. The, the Southerners, of course, were against this, uh, the planters and, you know, the, and in fact, they, in some states, they, they would they try to come up with, figure out how they could discourage these agents. You know, in other words, like make them sign up for a, a business license that costs $2,000 and things like that. Newspapers, you know, tried to um, encourage the African-Americans to say, and, and in some cases, of course, obviously, they were even threatened as such. Uh, but they, 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 like I say, the, the, uh, the economic incentive was tremendous. And it was, it was more than the economics, too. Uh, I mentioned the Chicago Defender. Many of the migrants, uh, uh, well, quite a few migrants, ended up actually writing letters to the Chicago Defender. Uh, and, uh, and they would reprint these letters, and they would indicate why they came. And, of course, economics was high on the agenda, but they also mentioned, you know, the lack of civil rights, in um, you know segregation, injustices, there was a lot of violence. You know, there was just, you know during this period there was a tremendous amount of uh, mob violence, lynchings, and so forth. And so there were you know uh, civil right uh, interest in them moving, and also um, a big incentive tended to be education. Also, not for so much for the migrants but for their children. You know, they were pretty much denied education. You know, of course, this, I mean, of course that, you know, obviously that even went back to the days of slavery, you know, but still, I mean, they were still denied education. Mostly, I mean, almost on, uh, uh, one, they were afraid of uh, educating the African-Americans that they'd want to get off the land. You know, like I say, they were afraid the education would give them some ambition or, you know, so they was generally discouraged, you know, even in Missouri, which was not nearly as bad as, you know, the Deep South, but still even um, 
you had African Americans mo moving from the more rural communities to the more urban communities, be, uh, you know, and, and, uh, to some extent, not only because of better economic opportunity, but again, uh, in some cases, to provide education uh, for their uh, children. Uh, Missouri had a law that said, you know, around this period of time, that said that you didn't have to establish a school uh, for black children unless you had 15, you know, black, you know, school-age youth. So there was a lot of communities in which you wouldn't get that number. They wouldn't have that number. And even in cases where they did have that number, uh, you know, in some of the small, poor counties, um, you know, there wasn't enough money. You know, I, in fact, I remember I, I talked to... Uh, uh, many years ago um, to a uh, white historian here in Missouri whose father had been a superintendent of education in a small community. And he frankly said that his father felt that if he had provided, you know, had been able to provide education uh, for the black st students, he wouldn't be able to provide an adequate education for the white students. And so those that were, you know, wanted an education or were willing to just had to move to a community uh, that would offer the education. And even then, except for the very large cities, like St. Louis, Kansas City, Columbia, Jefferson City, because you had Lincoln University there, um, and they had a lab, you know, a, a, a high school component. Um, you wouldn't really get beyond uh, the eighth grade. Uh, some places they would go up to a couple, you know, or it's like ninth and tenth. Uh, but, you know, I mean, but you would have to go to a larger urban area, you know, around, in, in, I'm in the Kansas City area, around Kansas City. You know, places like Liberty, uh, students would be uh, bused to finish the last couple years, you know, those that wanted a high school diploma and such. So you had this going on, and like in central Missouri, um, where Lincoln was located uh, with, the, with their high school, they called it the laboratory school, um, they would, um, people would come from Fulton, California, Sometimes people that worked there would bring kids and things like that. People would, uh, students would move, have, if they had relatives in some of these communities, they would move. So all these things were, uh, you know, went into uh, the, uh, the migration, you know, because like I said, uh, many of them wrote these letters to the, the Chicago Defender and the, um, the organization, the Association for the Study of Afro-American Life and History, they had a... Uh, a journal of uh, uh, Negro history, uh, and they reprinted these. And I remember reading many of these letters um, some years ago, <laughs> as such, you know. But it was very obvious that you know economics, even though it was the preeminent reason, uh, it was not the only one. Like I say, civil rights, educational concerns also fitted into uh, the the need uh, uh, or the, the needs of these migrants. So I think it's um, 
I know that Chicago was a very popular destination for a lot of these black migrants. Um, so, so, and, and you kind of went into why Chicago, that they had this correspondence going on and they were, they were actively kind of promoting themselves as a place to go. Right. Um, what factors were most influential to migrants as they decided where they would ultimately end up? Did they have a lot of choice in the matter? Um, and kind of related, how popular of a destination was Missouri? Because um, I think, you know, obviously economics and education are kind of the two biggest ones that you brought up for why a person would go to a certain place. But did different cities, different states um, appear more um, appealing to these black migrants or why or why not? Well, I mean, like I say, the, the main reason was economics, you know, and so obviously uh, Chicago, um, Detroit, you know, thinking about the automobile industry, you know, I mean, and they were hired uh, in Detroit now. I mean, they, they were basically at the bottom of the run, you know, in terms of jobs and had little opportunity for advancement. Uh, sometimes they were janitorial services, but again, compared to what they were enduring in the South, you know, this was, uh, this was uh, very, uh, uh, this very attractive. But even then, Missouri uh, was attractive. In some cases, uh, if the migrants, uh, when it comes to Missouri, in some cases, if they had family or connections, like in St. Louis or Kansas City, things like that, that would, uh, that would be a reason. Uh, other, other reasons would be uh, these people are operating with very limited resources. You know, they would get to uh, St. Louis or Kansas City if they found there was a job opportunity or something like that. Now, you got to remember Kansas City had the meat packing and things like that. So they, they realized they were jobs and, and, and that might be as far as they might want to go. And even though Missouri um, had uh, segregation, you know, it, it constitutionally it was only written um, that it was in education that the schools would be se uh, segregated. And so, I mean, that came, you know, that came around in the, like the Oh, uh, just in the late 1880s. They, yeah, I mean, they, it was in the Constitution of, of uh, 1875. They could have separate schools, uh, uh, but it, you know, later on it was made. In other words, this is the way it is. You know, uh, because previously, you know, in the Civil War, there were there were places where they, they had these very small communities where they would actually have black and white students together, but. You know, like I say, that was limited and, uh, you know, didn't last. Um, so the, uh, that would be a reason. Uh, but like I say, uh, the climate would be, uh, you know, in other words, the racial climate, whilst there was segregation, it was an informal kind of thing. So it, it, was, it was much more tolerant than... Uh, you know, in the Deep South, and also, um, uh, unfortunately, many African Americans uh, were forced to live in the same communities, and as the uh, uh, you know segregated area, and as more more and more people comes in, uh, come in, 
um, the quality deteriorates. But, the, it, but at the same time, it was like a double-edged sword, you know. Uh, since everybody was forced to live in the same area, and uh, this would include black professionals, you know. In fact, you know, once the migrants began taking off from the South, you would even have black professionals that would move up. And, and it, was, it was difficult. I know um, I did a study on a, a, a black educator, a guy named Nathan B. Young, who had been president of Lincoln uh, in the 20s. And he had been at Florida A&M 20, uh, for 20 years earlier. And he had a son that um, actually got his uh, law degree from Yale. And he was trying to make a living as a lawyer in Birmingham and was starving. He couldn't make it. And when his dad came up here uh, to Missouri, Dad Lincoln, he encouraged him, you know, knowing that he wasn't making a living in, in Birmingham, he said, you know, I, I think there's some opportunities in St. Louis for you. But he came up and uh, uh, for a while uh, uh, helped establish a newspaper, the uh, St. Louis American, and of course later on became a judge. And so, uh, so like I say, uh, in the South, uh, uh, not only were the migrants, the 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 skill, uh, you know, unskilled labor moving up, but even uh, uh, you know the professionals found they had to, uh, you know, generally speaking, uh, follow uh, the folk, so to speak, and everything. But like I say, Missouri it, it didn't attract the numbers that Chicago or Detroit did, but still, very much so. Um, I noticed, I, you know, I I, I looked at uh, some figures. And I noticed that in um, 1910, St. Louis had really about just under about 44,000 uh, African Americans, about 6% of the population. And by 1920, that number had gone up to 70,000, and they were about 9% of the population. So it was a huge, you know, more than a 50% increase. In their numbers, you know, and uh, in uh, Kansas City, uh, not as dramatic, but still they they were, you know, they were about in 1910 about 23, uh, 500, and they represented about 9.5 percent of the population. Um, by 1920, they were uh, almost 31,000. It was still around. 9.5% of the population, but it was a 30% increase in the number of African Americans. So even Missouri, you know, was attractive uh, to these, uh, you know, migrants. And of course, in Missouri, like I say, you also have this kind of um, internal movement uh, from the more rural areas uh, to the more, you know, to the urban centers, St. Louis and Kansas City, especially. Uh, you know, in terms of looking for uh, better employment opportunities and such. I like that you brought up um, the effects of World War One on immigration. That is something that um, this was a while back. I was doing some research just for this signature series in general, and I came across something that talks about this topic that you know there was such a drastic decrease in immigrant in Western Europe immigration. 
um, which had made up so much of the workforce and and that because this kind of overlapped with this time period of the Great Migration, that these black migrants often filled a lot of that void. And I found that really interesting. And it was one of the reasons I wanted to kind of explore this topic more because it was, you know, you think about if the Great Migration hadn't have happened, you know, what would have filled that void? What would have been different? So economically, clearly there was a major impact, you know, because it could have gone very differently. So what other kinds of impact do we see as a result of the Great Migration? So what do we see culturally, politically, socially, um, kind of aside from economically, what kinds of changes do we see? Well, we do, uh, we do because, you know, as you get the, uh, the numbers of African-Americans in the city, uh, they, they, they uh, politically, you know, in other words, they become strengthened. They, they had this saying that, you know, that, you know, at this time, most African-Americans were Republican. In other words, the party of Lincoln. But as we get into this period here, you, you know, you get considerably uh, more African-American political leaders beginning to feel that the Republican Party is, is taking them for granted. And so you, you actually, you know, get some movement uh, towards the Democrats. But now at this time, St. Louis was dominated by the Republican machine. And, uh, and then the African-Americans pretty much worked within that system there. Even though there were, I mean, in other words, there were calls for them to move to the Democratic. And it's interesting, politically, Democrats out in the rural areas were very conservative, you know, but within the city, it's a, uh, uh, Kansas City was under the Pendergast Democratic machine, and the African-Americans, uh, therefore, were moving in that vein. And so in the cities, uh, there tended to be more a recognition of their of the political, you know, importance. You know, what I'm saying, and so uh, of course, in the very beginning, the 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 kind of patronage they would receive would be very small. You know, what I'm saying, and uh, but as time went on, their voice, you know, became uh, louder, and they were able to demand more. Now, of course, the, the, uh, like a place like Chicago, you would see it, I mean, you know, first. For example, by 1928, Chicago was able to elect a black man to the United States Congress, to the House of Representatives. That would be the first black man since 1901, when the last of the, the Reconstruction Black politicians uh, left Washington. You know, that was a harbinger of what was to come. And also, it, it gives an indication of the political organization that is taking place within the cities, not just Chicago, but St. Louis, Kansas City, you know, um, the various uh, urban communities around the country. You know, like I say, in the, the beginning, small patronage position, small elective, you know, that kind of thing, but obviously growing. And then um, culturally, of course, people are, are more familiar in this period 
with the um, Harlem Renaissance, this great cultural burst of energy and the arts, you know, writing, painting, sculpture, uh, and music. What you really had was these renaissance in all these communities. So you had a similar thing occurring in St. Louis, in Kansas City. Now, of course, uh, the art form that, of course, becomes the most dominant is the music. I mean, and in Missouri almost, you know, already had a good foothold in ragtime. And it, 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 it makes that transition to jazz. You know, there's some scholars that believe that also because of the riverboat connection between New Orleans and St. Louis, that the uh, New Orleans-type influence in jazz was brought up there as such. And of course, Kansas City developed very strong jazz uh, components and things like that. So the, the you know this increase in population and people making you know more money, more decent living, and so forth. You know, and you know, and, and therefore you're creating cultural needs. Uh, like in Kansas City, of course, you 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 had people like uh, Cab Calloway that would actually go on to you know national fame, and uh, uh, Count Basie that started you know with some of the local bands, uh, with some of the local bands, and ultimately took over one of them and went on to again well, not only national, international uh, recognition as such. And uh, from St. Louis, you, of course, you had Josephine Baker, I mean, who, you know, ultimately, you know, became the toast of, of Paris, you know, um, and, you know, because obviously there was a uh, market uh, in Europe uh, for this type of music because it had been brought over uh, when the American soldiers were over there, uh, because in those days, all your the uh, regiments had bands, and uh, and some of the uh, the uh, uh, black units had some very notable bands and 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 uh, band leaders as, as such, and in fact, some of them were used to to actually go around to the various French communities, you know, sort of like, you know, as goodwill ambassadors as such. So the French became uh, very uh, knowledgeable in that regard and very uh, interested. One of the, uh, the other uh, political effects I might mention is uh, that in 1920, St. Louis uh, actually uh, elected the first black representative to the Missouri State Legislature, uh, Walter Moore. And, and, and one of the things that he did was put in a bill uh, that uh, changed Lincoln uh, Institute to a university. Now, it, 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 was, um, it had started off, of course, in 1866, by money raised by black Civil War soldiers, two regiments from Missouri raised the money to start the school. But in the beginning, it was very much a teacher education institute because that was the need. Mm -hmm. 
In fact, they even received state support for that. And uh, in 1890, um, it became a land-grant institution as such, so much more interest in, uh, emphasis on education and vocational, uh, because, um, which was very important, though, very important, because, you know, the states didn't always support not only the, the, the uh, you know, a school like Lincoln, uh, they didn't necessarily support education as well as they should have. And uh, so the money that was received from the land-grant status was very important. Very, 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 very important. Uh, and I mean, in, in fact, the reason they got the land, the 1862 schools like University of Missouri went to the federal government and asked them for money because they weren't getting what they wanted from the states. And uh, the question came up, well, what, what happens with your black citizens mm -hmm. in those states where they had segregation? And so uh, that ended up with the requirement, uh, a, a law that said that where the African-Americans couldn't go to the the land-grant school that had been established in 1862, uh, that uh, that state had to re uh, had to designate a school for African Americans. So that's very important, you know. At that at that time, they were receiving would start out twenty-five thousand dollars annually. So that was that was important, you know. In a you know in a in a smart, even though I mean it was mostly educational, vocational. But you get some smart leaders, educational leaders, and they could say, well, the farmers have to take English too, <laughs> you know? And so, I mean, in other words, they could use that money to support the whole school in a sense. And, 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 and so it's very important when, like I say, this, the states weren't providing uh, the kind of, uh, of assets uh, they did. But Walthall Moore made it, uh, Lincoln into, uh, changed the designation from institute to a university. Mm -hmm. you know, now, of course, it was to be on a par with the University of, University of Missouri, but I mean, really, that was only on paper. I mean, they didn't put the kind of money, I mean, they reorganized, but they didn't really put the money and resources there that, you know, would actually put them on a par. But they did, but the resources were significantly increased. And of course, and this is tied in, in some respects to, like I say, the only reason Walthall Moore was be able to be, well, he himself was a migrant, but I mean, the only reason he could be elected was because there was a sufficient African-American base in St. Louis. And, 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 and these, um, uh, the, the people that were the, the more affluent you know, that had the ambition for their, their children to go to college, uh, they began to say, you know, why do I have to spend the money to send my, my children to Howard University in Washington, D.C., or, or down to Atlanta, to Morehouse, or the female Spelman College? You know, you know, why can't we have a school within the state? And so that would, you know, the, this all ties back to the migrants and, you know, getting that base, even though the, the conditions were 
were crowded in uh, very poor housing and such, you know, because there was segregation. In fact, you might know that St. Louis in 1916 passed a, uh, an ordinance uh, that would uh, segregate the housing, a referendum, although that was later struck down by the Supreme Court. But probably, you know, more effective was, um, you know, here in Kansas City, um, the realtor and developer J.C. Nichols, who uh, developed the plaza and, uh, and some of the communities uh, in wealthy Johnson County in Kansas, uh, de de developed this, what they call the housing covenant. And of course, what that did was, in other words, within the deed, it said that the owner, I mean, agreed that they would not sell the house to an African-American. Sometimes, uh, I've, I've looked at a bunch of these, sometimes they say African-American and Mongols. So, so I don't know, you know Interesting. who else they were. <laughs> you know, Native, I don't know, Native Americans or, or Asians or what have, but, um, but at, it was mainly aimed at African-Americans. And um, the, um, and that really spread. And it was enforced by uh, realtors and, uh, and home associations. And actually for a while, the courts even enforced it until ultimately the NACP was able to uh, challenge it in court and then um, got it so that the courts would no longer enforce it. But still, because of, like I say, the real estate uh, agencies and the um, homeowners association, and, and like I say, it was written into the laws in such a, it was written in in such a way that I understand right now they, they're trying to get a law passed in the Missouri legislature to allow them to strike that from the deeds. Because I remember it, hearing about this. Yeah, in, in other words, it was put in such a way that you couldn't, you couldn't strike it. You know, I mean, it's not enforced. Right. You know, can, but it's, it, it's symbolic. Yeah, but it's still there, you know, and, and so apparently they have to pass a law to get it uh, to authorize the removal. So uh, it was pretty ironclad as such and, 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 and vigorously enforced as such out in the rural parts of Missouri. Uh, you know, you had a lot of sundown, what they call sundown towns, you know, where you couldn't, uh, you weren't supposed to, if you were African-American, you weren't supposed to be there when the sun came down. And uh, um, lynchings, because they were pretty prevalent uh, throughout the United States um, from, you know, like the 1880s up to, um, well, really up to, up to uh, through World War I, you know, I, they were uh, pretty uh, uh, prevalent. In fact, the year 1919 is called, um, the uh, uh, his, uh, historians call it the Red Summer, and that's because there were so many race riots across the country 
I, I think in that year there was around 25 throughout the country uh, against African Americans as such. And so there were, there were tensions, you know, around the country. The, uh, one of the worst was in Chicago. Uh, they had an imaginary line for swimming <laughs> in Lake Michigan, and an African-American floated across, and, you know, he was stoned, and, and next thing you know, there's a, there was a riot. Like I say, I, I think the, the, the migration was significant. I think, I, I think. Uh, both the, the you know the, the the external, but even the internal you know in other words the internal movement of the African American uh, population, and I think it was important politically, and culturally. It's 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 more these cultural, you know artifacts that uh, hang on. You don't you I guess you don't see as much. Um, you know, in terms of uh, exhibits and things like that, as, as you, you know, could. But then again, uh, some things, you know, some things are, you know, hard to to quantify. I mean, like I say, they were the migrants. There were letters. The letters that exist are there are some pictures. There are some pictures. Uh, you had uh, you had some organizations that tried to help the migrants, as such, um, uh, especially in terms of helping them adjust to the to the north, and in, in dealing with the, the various problems they had, like housing and like the Urban League, was important. The Urban League was very important, and and there was and at this time there was a branch of the Urban League established in St. Louis, you know, and then, you know, later, later Kansas City. And then um, the NACP, uh, uh, although it was primarily a, a uh, civil rights organization, but again, it was, you know, aimed at uh, making life better. And it did get involved in things like uh, better employment opportunities and things like that. I mean, of course, this, this period got, you know, well, one, after the war, you know, when there wasn't the demand for the war goods and the so forth, you know, the country, you know, you know began uh, sliding towards, in other words, there was an economic downturn even then. And, and even though we think about the 20s as a boom period, as such historically, um, not so much for the not so much for the African Americans. Uh, you know, you know, like I say, right after the war, there was a, uh, you know, it was a downturn, you know, and so, and they obviously they're, you know, they they're gonna be, you know, this is sort of this, you know, that old cliche last hired first fired kind of deal. So they were, you know, uh, they were affected. In fact, I'd say, you know, actually, I would say by 1925, you know, the African American population, it was pretty much, there was already a depression sort of going, you know, around, you know. I mean, even, even though we, we mark um, 1929 with the, you know, 
with the stock market crash as you know the the, the real uh, beginning of the depression but actually you know it 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 had started various sectors had already begun to decline and such you know agriculture was already in you know big trouble you know, and you got to remember, you know, even with this great migration, just a, the bulk of the African Americans are still in in the South, and and and, and of course, what would happen? The migration is ongoing. Mm-hmm. You know, it is ongoing. I mean, and I guess it all in some ways there always been something that you'd refer to the Exodus, you know. But the historian Carter G. Woodson wrote a book around 1920 uh, called. Uh, called a, a century of migration, and so he was, you know, he was going <laughs> looking at it even then. <laughs> yeah, you know, going all the way back, you know, in other words, and and noticing, in other words, the African Americans migrating in in different numbers, but migrating, you know, uh, out of the South, primarily looking for, you know, better opportunities as such. You've been an historian for many years. You you strive to share black history. You've co-authored the book, The Black Heritage of Missouri, and you, you've authored um, other articles and books as well. What is it that makes you want to share this history? And what stories do you most enjoy telling? And what stories still need to be told or told more in your opinion? I, I think what interests me mainly primarily is, is you actually see uh, in the African-American case, you know, people overcoming tremendous odds. So that's, that, that's a part of it. In other words, the, you know, uh, seeing the, uh, you know, with all that they, they would face, you know, how they would persist and even, you know, in, in triumph you know, even at times. And so uh, that's the thing. I, in terms of what needs still to be done, I I think a lot of, um, I think a lot more local history still needs to be done. You know, mostly we know the big picture. And, uh, and, uh, but a lot of, Local stories uh, kind of get lost, and and by local stories I mean not only in the smaller communities but even in the uh, larger communities. You know, there, there's, there's there doesn't seem to be as much known as we ought to know. Now, of course, some of that is you know some of it's based on limitations. I mean, because uh, history involves, you know, looking at records. I mean, at one time, you know, you used to, you know, they talk about history as uh, the history of, of, you know, kings and people like that, you know, because it involves leaving a record. And of course, you know, people that are laboring every day and things like that, generally speaking, are not leaving a record. Or you have to go in a very roundabout way to get their records or to get records. You know, I mean, sometimes, you know, looking at at least, you know, looking at local church records could give an aspect. 
things like that. You know, so I, I, I think, you know, and, and a lot depends, and, and unfortunately, a lot depends on oral history, people's memories. And, and unfortunately, you know, that is something that is, is somewhat, there are some, there have been some significant oral history projects, uh, but it's, it comes and goes. And unfortunately, you know, um, you got to deal with mortality. There are only so many people that lived this story, and you know, and and then you're gone. I know when I was doing my my research on uh, the, the uh, black educator, college president Nathan B. Young, and he was in the 20s. You know, he was up into the 30s that he was active as a president. I mean, actually, he started like. He actually worked for Booker T. Washington in the 1890s, uh, but he, he finished in the 30s. And I was doing most of my work on him in the, in the 80s. And I interviewed dozens of people. And by the 90s, all those people were gone. You know, so that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a problem. It is. And I think, you know, you mentioned earlier how we don't really have things like exhibits frequently or... Um, these other kinds of interpretation of this history. And I really appreciate what you said about how important oral history is. And I think that um, especially as people are getting more, especially these days, they're getting more into things like genealogy and, and exploring your roots and, and all these things that people are understanding that these stories that are coming from the person who experienced them are just that much more important. And I think kind of throughout this conversation, you've laid this this really interesting groundwork for, you know, making the case for why this is such a significant event that deserves more recognition and, and extending it even more so into not just the Great Migration, but look at all that it has impacted. Um, talking about things like jazz music and and um, you know, churches and politics and just almost every facet of life. And, you know, it deserves more credit. So I think kind of as we, as we wrap up our conversation, how would you like to see the public better engage with topics like these? You know, what can the everyday Missourian do as a book reader, as a museum goer, as a general citizen do to better engage with these kinds of topics? Well, I, you know, I, I think um, the, the, the idea of exhibits is good, I think, um, because, or, any, or, or, you know, exhibits or actually any kind of programming because it, it gives you, a, it, like an exhibit can be a spur. Somebody can come see the exhibit and, and they can be motivated from that or they could contribute. They could contribute. I mean, even programs, I, I, I can remember going to programs where you would have some young scholar talking about something, and all of a sudden somebody would raise their hands from the back, and there was somebody who had actually been there on the ground, you know, and, and could add to, you know, and, and, to, to, and to the knowledge that was available, you know, I mean. So 
I think all kinds of cultural activities, I think uh, by all kinds of, you know, mostly you have to have institutions do these things. There has to be schools and churches and things like that, you know what I'm saying? You know, sometimes it's mostly, it's got to be institutions in, in a sense. You know, you could, it'd be hard for individuals to do, you know, I mean, you can have certain organizations that can put something on and things like that, which would lead uh, to something. But uh, I, I think it, it has to be, have some kind of institutional base. Because not only you need, you know, organization to put something together, you need place and things like that. So all that's important. So I think, you know, and we have institution, I just think that, um, you know, probably we all need a little bit more imagination, you know. In other words, to think along of, of what, we, what more can we do? You know, what more can we do? Well, thank you so very much for a wonderful, impactful, and honestly, an extremely necessary conversation. It's, um, it's our hope that this episode really does inspire others to go out and learn more about this history. Kind of like you said, you never know what might be that, that spur or that spark to influence someone to go out and do more. Um, and, and kind of tying in what you said, hopefully it inspires them to look at how it has shaped their own communities. Like you said, looking at inward at their own places, their own communities, looking more local. Um, so I'm very grateful for your time and your knowledge. Thank you very much. Thank you, I appreciate it, my, my pleasure. Dr. Tony Holland is a retired professor of history, a veteran, and an author. Thank you for tuning in to Black Movement Part 2, The Great Migration. We sincerely hope you enjoyed the episode. This podcast is brought to you by Missouri Humanities. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and stay engaged by following us on social media at Mo Humanities. For more about our 2023 signature series, visit mohumanities.org movement. I'm Caitlin Yeager. Join us next time as we explore more about the roots and routes of Missourians.